All right. Well, uh, I, I had an introduction prepared, but that was a pretty good one by Brian. So uh, why don't we just skip that uh, and, uh, and we can just jump right into the text. As Brian did say, uh, my name is Drew uh, and I am one of the pastors here and we are going to be in First John. Uh, it's going to be chapter 4, and we're going to be in uh, verses 7 to 12. And let me just say this. Uh, let me echo his sentiment uh, about even just kind of our, our small number here tonight and how, uh, how much of a privilege it is uh, to be able to go through uh, God's Word together and, uh, and talk about the things of God uh, and His great love for us. Uh, for me, a lot of the times, like, I, I look at kind of this as an obligation. I'm like, man... Uh, like, I don't need uh, something else on my plate that's going to take me 40 to 50 hours to prepare. Uh, and then my wife, like, in her uh, beautiful, gentle way is like, maybe, like, that's a gift from God and not a burden. And so that was even really helpful for me. Uh, hopefully that's helpful for you, that this is a real privilege uh, that we have to be able to open God's Word uh, together and go through it. So uh, let's, uh, let's do First John uh, 4, 7 through 12. And here's where we're going. Real true, genuine love, okay? Real, true, genuine love. And before uh, we jump into a conversation about real love, true love, uh, genuine love, what I want to do is have a conversation uh, about counterfeits. Now, uh, when you think about a counterfeit, here's the definition I want to come to your mind, okay? A counterfeit is something that is close to the real thing, but in the end, it's not the real thing at all, okay? Again, uh, counterfeit is close to the real thing, but in the end, it's not the real thing at all. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pull a Charles Dickens uh, Ghost of Christmas Past, and we're going to revisit my Christmas nightmare from 1992, okay? Now, uh, three things uh, you need to know about Christmas of, uh, of 1992. For me, uh, I was 12 years old, which puts me uh, kind of in the early, uh, early stages of middle school, uh, that awful time for everybody, uh, regardless of who you are. Uh, the second thing uh, that you need to know about me in the Christmas of 1992 is that uh, the end-all, be-all, the thing that I desired uh, above all things, uh, the thing that would turn my Christmas dream into a Christmas miracle uh, was a Nintendo Game Boy, okay? Now, it should, there it is, right there, okay? Uh, <laughs> doesn't that look archaic? Like, that looks like something my two-year-old could put together in like five minutes, right? Uh, but for me, uh, that right there uh, represented all of my hopes, all of my dreams, everything that was good, uh, right, and true in the world, okay? Uh, now, the third thing uh, you need to know about me and the Christmas of 1992 uh, was that there was a string of movies that had recently come out, Okay? Uh, they were in this order, uh, Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure, all right? Then it was Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey as if they needed another one, uh, but they made a second one. Uh, and the third one uh, was Wayne's World. Now, uh, they severely influenced my lexicon at the time. And so my vocabulary uh, drastically changed. Um, think, uh, uh, think Crush, the turtle, uh, off of Nemo and Dory. That's how I talked uh, all the time, okay? All the time. That was my vocabulary. So I used words uh, like bogus and uh, excellent and shea, uh, things like that. Like that, that's how I talked, uh, okay? Um, now, the issue, and my, and my favorite was bogus, but, but the issue uh, with that word is that I didn't take the time to like actually uh, look it up in a dictionary. So for me, uh, bogus 
was, uh, was good and awesome, and like any, anything that was a, a good thing was bogus for me. Uh, and so fast forward to uh, Christmas Eve, and my Christmas in 1992 is shaping up to be uh, the real thing. Like It is just like all the other Christmases that I had experienced. And uh, so Christmas Eve, we go to my grandmother's house, uh, and we spend time with, uh, with my cousins and my aunts and uncles, and we, we drink uh, good drink and have good food, uh, and we really enjoy that time together. And then uh, we go home to our respective houses, and the way the wits did Christmas was this. Uh, we had wrapped gifts that were underneath the tree, right? And those were from like friends and family. Uh, and then the big ticket items were from Santa, right? And they were set out uh, the night before Santa showed up, uh, set out those gifts. And so uh, Christmas morning, my sister and I wake up and my sister runs out to the tree uh, and all of her American doll stuff is there and she's playing with that, right? Uh, and enjoying that. And I run out uh, to the tree and there's nothing, Okay, uh, absolutely nothing for me. So in my 12-year-old mind, I'm kind of going, okay, what is going on here? Like, what's, uh, what's happening? And so I'm like, well, uh, there's always a letter from Santa. Uh, maybe I should go read that. And so uh, I go grab the letter, and the letter says, uh, Emily, that's my sister. Uh, I love you very much. I hope you enjoy your American doll stuff. Have a Merry Christmas. Love, Santa. Drew, definition of bogus, fake false, counterfeit, not real, kind of like the Game Boy you're not going to be getting for Christmas. And so like in my mind, like I am full scale meltdown, like tears are welling up in my eyes and I'm like everything was was lining up to be the Christmas that I expected. It seemed like the real thing and then all of a sudden it's not the real thing at all. And so it gets worse from here because then like my dad looks at my mom and he goes, honey, grab the camera. (laughs) <laughs> right? And then, and then they look at me and they're like, hey, Drew, what did Santa bring you for Christmas? Just like sitting there like snapping photos of me in my despair. Uh, now it turns out like my parents are good parents. Uh, they went and they grabbed the Game Boy out of the closet like 30 minutes later after they had some fun with me and uh, all was made right in my world. So it wasn't actually a uh, counterfeit Christmas, but it really felt that way for a time, right? In a similar vein, uh, when I walked up here, uh, one of the first things, like if you've never met me or seen me, uh, one of the first things that people uh, tend to notice about me, which they always feel compelled to say this, as if like I didn't know, uh, is, man, you are really tall. And I go, I know, I've been living with this for like 20 years, pants don't fit, I duck through doorways, just kind of my daily experience. Uh, <laughs> and then the next thing uh, that you would deduce off of that first thing is, I bet... Like, I would assume that while he might not be like an NBA all-star, he's probably pretty good at the game of basketball, okay? In that second assessment, you have never been more wrong, ever in your entire life, okay? See, like, like, like when God was making me, he added a lot of height. He was like, all right, let's give him a lot of height. Uh, But then, like, hand-eye coordination, they were like, no, he, he doesn't need that. We're not making Michael Jordan here. Like, get that out of here. Right? Uh, like, like, just height. That's it. All right? Not hand-eye coordination, not the ability to shoot, not the ability to dribble, not the ability to pass, none of that. Right? So, like, on the surface, I have the appearance of something, mainly that I would be good at basketball, but in the end, uh, I am not that thing in any way, shape, or form. See, I'm a counterfeit. Right? I'm a counterfeit when it comes to the game of basketball. 
So what in the world does my 1990s bogus Christmas and my basketball ineptitude have to do with a sermon about love? Again, think about what a counterfeit is. It's something that's close to the real thing, but it ends up not being that thing at all. And if I think, or, or and if we take just a minute uh, to examine our lives and our relationships, we might just realize that while Christmas is a season where we celebrate love, we're not as good at it as we like to think. It might be a little strong to call our love for one another counterfeit or bogus, if you will, but I think we would admit that our love in all of its forms, whether that's romantic or familial or even our friendships, like we, we tend towards dysfunction and not health. Like, let, let, let's take Christmas and family, right? Because uh, that's a recipe for success. Like, I have a good idea. Let's take all of our family, right? Let's put them all in one house, and let's just keep them there for, like, a long period of time. Let's just see what happens, right? But it's always, like, somebody else that has the crazy family. It's not me, right? It's always, like, uh, crazy cousin, fill in the blame. I'm not going to give a name because maybe there's somebody out there. But, like, it's always the crazy cousin. Like, it's never me that causes the familial conflict when we all get together. How about our marriages? Like, I'll be honest here. Uh, mine's not a Nicholas Sparks movie, Okay? Like, I love my wife, my wife loves me, uh, and there's a lot of joy that we experience together, but it's work. Like, there's nothing sexy about doing dishes or taking out the trash. Like, there's nothing romantic about forgiving or extending grace for the thousandth time. There's nothing sentimental about the patience required when you disagree about the money. How about our friendships? Ask yourself, do I selflessly care for those around me, or do I care about them for what they can do for me? What would the answer be? What would your friends say about how you love them? What about your roommates, your city group, your neighbors, your kids? Again, I, like, I think if we could have a little humility here and maybe some self-awareness, I think that what we find is that our love for one another ends up being far short of God's best for us. See, it's often close to the real thing, but in the end, it's not that thing at all. So enter in John, and thank God for John. And, and here's what I love about John. So like if you read uh, John, John's incredibly cyclical. So he says something, and then he repeats himself multiple times. Uh, contrast that with like Paul. Uh, Paul's letters, Paul will say something, and he's like point one, boom, point two, boom, point three, boom. And it's just kind of, it's very linear in its progression, right? Whereas like John, uh, John's like a good parent, right? Uh, like I have a two-year-old. Uh, I have to repeat myself a hundred times, and then she's kind of like, oh, I, I get that that's probably what you want me to do. I'm still not going to do it, but I think I understand that's what you want me to do. Uh, John, like a good parent, again, he's, uh, he's cyclical. He's going to come back to things over and over and over again. So already in chapter 2, he's given the commandment to love our brother within the family of God, and the same charge is given again in chapter 3, verse 11. He then starts to unpack love, in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, by giving us a definition that is summed up in the word sacrifice. This is what he says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now in chapter 4, he's going to give his most thorough treatment on love, and here's what he's going to say. So if you're a note taker, uh, these are my three points. Uh, if you want to write them down, I'll, I'll go slow here. True love is a mark of salvation. 
It's manifest in salvation, and it's a response to salvation. Again, here they are. True love is a mark of salvation. True love is manifest in salvation, and true love is a response to salvation. See, this is the apex of John's treatment on love, and only in this light does an appeal to love, verse 7, and an obligation to love, verse 11, and the ability to see love brought to completion, verse 12, make any sense whatsoever. But John's building his case, so let's start with John's treatment of love as a mark of salvation by reading verses 7 and 8 again. So you can look with me at 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So he gives the exhortation to love, and then he gives us a positive statement about love, followed by a negative statement. Both of them lead uh, to the same conclusion. Let's start with a positive statement first. Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Think about that statement as God being the source from which all love comes. Like in, in the same way that we Coloradans, we look to the snowmelt as our primary source uh, of water, our primary supply of water here in the city. Now it would be true to say that all people, uh, Christian or not, are capable of tapping into this source and expressing love because all people have been created in what the Bible calls the image of God. People that aren't Christian certainly can have deep, meaningful marriages. They can have deep, meaningful friendships and deep, meaningful family relationships. But John's not after a common grace or an incomplete expression of love. See, he goes on to emphasize a specific love that is a response to being born of God and knowing him. It's not accidental that this is the language of salvation that John has emphasized elsewhere in his gospel. For example, he, in John 3, uh, Jesus has an encounter uh, with a uh, Jewish leader whose name is Nicodemus, and they're kind of going back and forth, and they're talking, uh, and, and Jesus says this to him. He says, unless you were born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. Okay, there's that born again language. And then in John 17, uh, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's praying for his disciples. We call this the high priestly prayer. Uh, and when he prays, he actually gives a definition of eternal life. I find this really, really helpful. And this is what he says, uh, that eternal life is knowing, right? It's knowing or being in relationship with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. But if the positive is true, the negative is most certainly as well. The negative here is a lack of love, which is directly correlated to a lack of a relationship with God or a knowing See, John ends this thought with an emphatic statement that God is love. Love isn't something that just flows out of him as though it were a byproduct of something else. It is the very thing he is in his character and his nature. So with positive and negative statements, whoever loves and whoever does not love, they both point to the existence or lack thereof of an anchoring relationship or knowing with the God of love secured for us by the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, before we continue on, uh, let's camp on that for a minute. Like, like I want you to hear this, because there's a warning here that, that we really uh, need to take seriously. It's a time that we, we can really kind of examine our hearts and our lives. This is what he's going to say. Uh, the existence of true, genuine love in your life is directly correlated to whether or not you know him. See, see John is so practical here. 
He is so practical here. And in the most direct way possible, John's telling you and me that if we don't love one another, then we aren't followers of Christ. Okay? As uncomfortable as it might be, let that sit on you for a minute. Think on that. If you do not love, then like you might talk about being a Christian, you might talk about following Jesus, you might talk about church attendance, but the reality is, is you don't know him. You don't know him, right? Like John Elsewhere says that like, if you don't walk in the light, but you walk in darkness, and you say that you walk in the light, or you say you're a follower of Jesus, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. Like, I don't know how more kind of practical you can be. Like, John is just kind of very direct, and he's like, look, man, like, if this is not true in your life, then, then you're a liar, okay? Now, it makes the next two verses all the more crucial because, as I mentioned previously, John's not talking about any generic or universal idea of love, but the only kind of love that really matters for all eternity, the love of God that was demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 9 and 10 as John's going to unpack our salvation so we can tangibly grasp true love. See, warm fires, cold snow, family, friends, gifts, good food, good drink and song, those things they call to love in our hearts, but in reality, they are a shadow of the real. Because true love, genuine love, is anchored in a very specific real-time, real-place event. It's what we as a church are encouraging you and your families to believe and celebrate during this season. See, true love is the incarnational, sending, initiating, wrath-absorbing, life-giving, sin-bearing, death-overcoming love of God through Jesus Christ, God's only Son. See, it, it transforms this idea of Christmas sentiment to real Christmas power. The power to love, like truly love selflessly. So let's start walking through it because there, there's a lot here that, that I want us to look at. The first thing I want us to see, uh, and if you're looking, uh, we're in verse 9. So the first thing I want us to see uh, is that our salvation is secured by Jesus alone. John emphatically appeals to Jesus as God's only son. There is only one son and consequently... Only one uh, salvation. Think about the book of Acts. Luke's going to record Peter's proclamation before the Jewish leaders that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The second thing I want us to look at is that our salvation is initiated by God. Verses 9 and 10 explicitly uh, use the verb sent as it relates to God. He is the author of salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says. Not only does he send, uh, but John is in lockstep with Paul in Romans 5, where, we're, where we are reminded that God initiated, not after we apologized, not after we tried to like clean ourselves up, not after we tried to do the right thing, uh, but while we were enemies, weak and sinners, Christ died for us. See, this isn't a meet me halfway kind of thing as we're about to see. Now, John's going to lead us into some deep waters, but here's what I'm hoping to communicate. The salvation of Jesus deals with both our spiritual condition of death, the penalty of death, and God's righteous wrath towards sin and sinners. So let, let's start uh, with John's use of the phrase in verse 9, so that we might live through him. 
See, the implication here is that we face a universal human problem, okay? And that problem isn't education. It's not like a lack of kindness. It's not the need to look within and self-actualize. It's not the, the need to read more books and, and become better and like white-knuckle this thing or like some kind of standard uh, of moral improvement. No, the condition is death. And it's a condition of, separa- uh, of separation from God as well as a penalty that we deserve from God for our rebellion against him and our fist-shaking defiance that we don't need him. Now, not only do we live under the rule of death, we face the wrath of the creator of the universe. So let's look in ver- at verse 10 at the word that John uses to describe the solution to our problem of death and wrath. So propitiate, uh, in its simplest meaning, is to pacify or appease someone's anger. John drops the word propitiation for the second time in his letter, and one of our other pastors, Brian, uh, he gave a good summation a few weeks ago, but here's what I'm going to add, and, and it's actually from a book uh, called The Cross of Christ. It's written by a guy named John Stott. Now, let me just say a couple things about this book because uh, I, I really want to recommend that resource to you. Uh, again, the book, if you're going to take notes, is The Cross of Christ. It's written by a guy uh, named John Stott. Now, two things about this book. One, uh, it's incredibly dense. Like It is incredibly dense and rich and beautiful and talks about kind of uh, the, uh, the gravity of our salvation, uh, the work of Jesus Christ. But the really cool thing about it is that it's also accessible, okay? So you don't need to like know biblical Greek uh, to wade through this thing. It's not written by a philosopher uh, where you kind of read two sentences and you're like, man, I don't even know what I just read, right? It's a really, really helpful resource. I'd really encourage you uh, to get it. Uh, to dig into it, uh, to really kind of see the richness uh, within it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read out of that book. I don't have it here. It's on my iPad, but I'm going to read some quotes. Uh, They should be up on the screen, so follow along. Don't let your eyes glaze over. This is still really important, and I think it's really, really helpful for us. So Stott's going to ask three questions as it relates to propitiation, and so we're going to walk through each one of them, so the question and then then his answer. So the first one, he's going to say this, uh, why is propitiation necessary? And here's what he says, sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, issuing an active rebellion against him. This sin arouses the wrath of God. This does not mean as animus fear that he is likely to fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation, still less that he loses his temper for no apparent reason at all. For there is nothing capricious or arbitrary about the holy God, nor is he ever irascible, malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. His anger is neither mysterious nor is it irrational. It is never unpredictable, but always predictable because it is provoked by evil and evil alone. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. The second question Stott's going to ask is, who makes the propitiation? And while I mentioned this a couple minutes ago when we were talking about God being the one who initiates Uh, it bears worth repeating. And here's what Stott says. In a pagan context, it is always human beings who seek to avert the divine anger, but the gospel begins with the outspoken assertion that nothing we can do, say, 
offer or even contribute can compensate for our sins or turn away God's anger. There is no possibility of persuading, cajoling, or bribing God to forgive us, for we deserve nothing at his hands but judgment. No, the initiative has been taken by God himself in his sheer mercy and grace. The last thing Stott asks is this, what was the propitiatory sacrifice? And he says this, it was neither an animal, nor a vegetable, nor a mineral. It's not a thing at all, but it was a person. And the person God offered was not somebody else. No, he offered himself. In giving his son, he was giving himself. And so he wraps up the idea of propitiation by saying this. God himself is at the heart of our answer to all three questions about the divine propitiation. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself, who in holy love, undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. See, this is the beauty in the heart of the gospel. But it doesn't just end in a death for payment of sin and satisfaction of wrath. Remember how John starts in verse 9. God sends his son so we might live through him. See, the condition of death is negated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus doesn't stay in the ground, but he resurrects and he overcomes the greatest enemies that you and I will ever face in Satan, sin, death, and hell. See, the resurrection is the proof that payment has been made, wrath has been satisfied, and our new life has been secured. So here's how I want to wrap this thing up. Look with me at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, John's giving us a command. God's loved you like this, so then you should love one another just like that. See, here's what John is saying. Love finds its culmination in this one great act of sacrifice and substitution. In that same way, we are called to extend love to others. And while John has given us a command, here's what I want to leave us with, a question. See, what, what if we loved like that? What if the great love of God through the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit transformed our hearts and our minds and, and we walked by faith believing that? And it so transformed our hearts and our minds that, that we begin to ask the question of what does it look for, for us to love like this? Like what if I loved like that? What if in your marriage, husbands, when your wife is pleading with you about prioritizing her and spending time with the kids on Saturday, you don't disappear in front of a TV and binge watch Netflix? What if you initiated just like the initiating love of God. And wives, what if when your husband doesn't listen and you feel hurt because you haven't been hurt or really cared for, what if instead of letting your anger lead you to punish him for days with silence and a cold shoulder, what if you bear that punishment in your heart, mind, and body by forgiving? Wouldn't that be amazing? 
Maybe extending the grace of God to bear that wrath in your own body as opposed to uh, extending that wrath to somebody else. See, what if we were the kind of city group members that initiated coffee with the new person at our group, even if you're not a leader, and even though that means sacrificing time that would be easier spent uh, you know, at your house or like with people uh, that you're comfortable around? What if we believe that this thing we call the church family isn't created in days or weeks, but it requires months, even years of sin-bearing, initiating, and forgiving as we fight to love one another? So let's ask God for the faith to be able to do that. Let's ask God that our love would be true and real. Let's ask God that our love would bear wrath instead of extending that on other people. Let's ask God that our love would be life-giving. Let's ask God that our love would move from mere Christmas sentiment to real Christmas power. And here's what I think is possible. I think the world begins to see the unseeable. I think that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members would actually come to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I think the language that John uses of being born of God is the theme that has resounded throughout Denver, the neighborhoods here, to the very ends of the world. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, the grace through the power of your Holy Spirit uh, that we would really hear, John, that our love uh, would be reflective of the great salvation that Jesus has secured by his propitiating death and the resurrection. That we wouldn't kind of hear a sermon like this and go, yeah, 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 like I know I need to love better. Uh, I know I need to forgive Uh, but that we would be motivated and transformed by the beauty of the salvation that Jesus Christ has secured for us on the cross. And as we reflect and think on that, that we would initiate, that we would forgive, that we would bear one one another's burdens, and that we would walk along one another in love. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.